Hi there. You're listening to the new Social Contract Podcast. I'm Tamsin Peach. We started this podcast because we wanted to make a contribution to a really important conversation. A conversation about the need for a new type of social contract between universities, their communities and the state. And with higher education and all those who work in it facing very, very difficult circumstances, this conversation is more urgent than ever. There could be up to 21,000 job losses across Australian universities. COVID-19 punches a $5 billion hole in the sector's finances. We knew that the international student uh, effect was going to have a major shock for the university sector. The National Tertiary Education Union has cut a deal with 38 universities that would see academic and professional staff take pay cuts of between 5 and 15%. It might help save 12,000 jobs. So you expect... Extraordinary times call for extraordinary measures. And that's why for today's bonus episode of The New Social Contract, we wanted to hand the mic over to you. The higher education sector is made by a whole range of people we don't necessarily hear from very often. People you probably won't see in the headlines or hear on the morning news, but whose lives, whether through their work or study, are deeply connected to our higher education institutions. So this past week, my team and I have been collecting voice memos and doing short interviews with people from universities across Australia. We wanted to try and find out what life's been like for you during this time. What's it like having your lab in lockdown? How are you adjusting to online teaching? What's it like trying to do research from home whilst juggling a host of other care responsibilities? And if you're a student, How's it been transitioning from face-to-face learning to learning online almost overnight? What's life like if you're an international student who stayed in Australia? And what's life like if you went back home? And as we all live through these strange times, what are your hopes for the future of teaching and learning and research post-pandemic? As we start, fingers crossed, to see the lifting of lockdown, what kind of universities do you think we need? Now, that's a big conversation, and it's one that has to involve everyone, which is why today we're going to begin by listening to each other. An international student's perspective. When you arrive just before closing time. Um, so this is Fahim M. Rofik. I'm a Bangladeshi student here right now in Sydney. I'm studying at UTS in IT, and my major is in data analytics. Uh, so first week of my class, I did in, in campus, uh, but on the next week, um, halfway through, my classes just stopped because of the coronavirus thingy, and it went online. Since I moved to online, like at home, I'm sitting on my chair for the first one hour of my lecture. Sometimes I get sleepy, and then I move to my bed. Sometimes I fall asleep. The next two hours of the lecture, I just miss that. <laughs> I'm paying a huge amount, right, for going to the campus and doing live classes, but I feel like if you're doing an online course, I could have just spend some money on the online courses available, right? And they're much cheaper, like a $100 course will give you the same content, which I'm studying right now, but I'm paying huge amount for that. And it just doesn't make sense to spend that much money right now. So I feel like the university, what they can do is they can give us some discount on for this semester because we're just doing online classes and not going to the campus. So right now I'm gaining some weight. I have a big belly right now. <laughs> So I'm hoping when the situation comes down, I'm going to join the gym, lead a healthy life, go to my university, meet my lecturers one-to-one, make some new friends at university and have a good time. 
studying in Australia but living at home in Indonesia. So I'm Kiara. I'm studying Bachelor of Management, uh, submajoring in Digital Creative Enterprise. So I just arrived on Sydney at February. <laughs> I really remember on my first day TTS, is it is really huge, and I was a little confused because there are around 11 building at TTS. So I was thinking, right, like, damn, how am I gonna get to my classes if it was this big? So I studied there for a month, doing orientation week and joining some classes, but then. The corona got into Sydney and UTS decided to do online classes. So after a month being on Sydney, I decided to go back home again for it is safer and it's close to my family and my family believe that it's best for me to be with them during this hard time. And this is my first time doing online class and it's kind of hard being in Indonesia while doing online class in Sydney because the time difference. Some of my class is really early in the morning and I have to skip some of the class because I could not wake up. So the class should be 8.30 in Sydney time. But because of the three-hour difference, it's going to be 5.30 in the morning. Meeting my classmates through Zoom or like Microsoft Teams is really different. It's not really effective when the class is over and it's like, okay, it's over then. Well, if you meet in class, you can like talk after class, like hang out together. I think when I go back to Sydney, I'm, I'm really looking forward to meet my classmates. I mean, it's my first year in Sydney. I never experienced studying with a lot of international students. And I think I'm really looking forward to do that. Like socializing and knowing other people from different backgrounds. I think it's fun. When the Prime Minister of Australia tells you to go home. We international students bring like 37 point something billion dollar to economy every year. And like government is like literally using us like cash cows. I mean, when we are helping the economy, we are welcome. When we can't give the rent, when we can't pay the fees, or like we don't have like sufficient fund for like other things. Instead of helping the students who have been helping the economy previously, now they don't have like anything for us and they're like, just go back to your country. We don't need you anymore here. Thank you very much. Uh, so my name is Aman. I'm an international student from India. I study architecture at University of Sydney. This is my last year, so I'm in Australia for my last few years. I was financially supported by my parents, like from the last three years. And since there's a lockdown in India and since there's a lockdown in Australia, and, like, they are not able to like send me any money at the moment. I'm not able to like pay rent, don't have like enough money even for like food and like other basic necessities. Um, so in the March, like when this lockdown started, I was getting like emails from my accommodation, Sydney University Village. Like we haven't got real rent from like last two weeks or something. And if you do not pay the rent by a certain date, then we have right to like remove you from the accommodation. So sort of like eviction. I contacted like other students too. We decided to like write a letter to the vice chancellor of our university asking them to like stop the evictions uh, and then even like suspend the rent. Um, so vice chancellor took some time and then he confirmed us like they won't like any evictions in Sydney University accommodation. But then again, they are asking that ultimately like in next few months, they will start charging students the rent which they haven't paid. So that will like adapt on students. So in coming few months, students will struggle quite a lot paying the rent of that time and paying the previous rent. So that would be an issue for them. And regarding the studies, it has been horrible. I will be very honest. Like in cases of international students, like you can't even like get support from your family because they are not living with you. The only uh, human interaction which you have with like other people are through phone. So I talk to my parents and I feel good at that time. But then throughout the day, I mean, it's 
very stressful. Like uh, you can't go outside, you can't meet anyone. Also, like when we were talking to the deputy vice chancellor and pro vice chancellor, they told us that a university is providing a $250 food voucher. Yesterday, like day before yesterday, we started getting the email from the uh, university writing this food voucher. So I applied for the financial help around like first of this month. And I have my interview on 14th May. That's like almost like two weeks. So for two weeks, I have a zero account balance and I'm just like surviving from the help from my uh, fellow flatmates. I have been borrowing money from my friends who are in a comparatively better condition than me. Like sometimes I get like $20 from them. Sometimes I just ask them if they're going for grocery to like buy something for me. So they bring some food for me. So that's how I have been working uh, food wise. Uh, at the moment, I will be honest, like um, I have lost hope. The students I have talked to, they have lost hope. It is a very critical situation. It would have been like so, so helpful if government or like the university would have like helped the students. It would have helped us like sustain a decent life, focus on our studies. That's what we are like here for, for the studies. Uh, although I know like it happened out of nowhere. I mean, we were not expecting like how things will work out in this year um, because of the coronavirus. But if you could have like got some help from like uh, government or like university, the things might have been different. International students, like when we come, have like so many dreams, like we are going to this different country, gonna be so much nice, we're gonna meet so many people, we're gonna study, we, we will get a degree, we'll get a job and everything. We have like so many plans and at the moment, like everything is stopped. University. Teaching during a pandemic. You can't read the Zoom the same way you read the room. My name is Jenna Price and I'm an academic at the University of Technology Sydney from the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and I'm coming to you from my couch. COVID has impacted both my research and my teaching and also my external engagement. In terms of my teaching, it has made it very difficult to be able to understand how students are travelling because you can't read the Zoom in the same way that you can read the room. I think that students don't fully engage online because online they're also quite distracted. I mean, I have a, a thing in my classrooms where I say, for the first 45 minutes, not even I am going to look at my telephone. We're all going to put our phones aside. We're all going to speak to each other as people and try and understand this new concept. So all that's gone, the multiple distractions of being online in a room by yourself exist. In terms of my research, it's meant that the kind of research that I'm interested in, which is uh, fatal violence against women and how violence is portrayed in the media, that requires quite a bit of field work. I love to work in an interdisciplinary way with the people at the Monash Centre for Gender and Violence. I can't do that anymore. I can't go and see them. I can't go and speak to groups of people and I can't go and hear groups of people and have that kind of free-flowing conversation. That kind of glorious, spontaneous human interaction has all disappeared. Uh, that said, there are some benefits to shifting to online and the big benefit is that we were still able to teach and students are still able to learn. The thing that was very, very sweet was the number of students who were still learning from China, for instance, who actually recorded really high levels of satisfaction. And I was chatting to a friend the other day and she was going, oh, why was that, do you think? And I said, well, you know, they might have come to Australia and they had found that they've gone into isolation. They don't have any connections here, so they're lonely. 
and they're sad, whereas the ones still at home are still having dad and mum's homemade noodles and homemade dinners and they're with their family. So it's possible for them to learn and uh, still have that fantastic supportive framework. So for that reason, I'm really grateful we have online learning. Quick, the kids are in bed. Now it's time to start work. Hi, this is Serena Killam from the School of Agricultural and Wine Sciences at Charles Sturt University. I'm doing this report from home during COVID-19 self-isolation conditions. It's almost 8pm at night, my kids are sleeping and often this is the only time during the day that I have some quiet time to myself to come and do that deep thinking work that's required in academia. I'm really lucky that I guess because we live in rural Australia that I have the ability to have a whole room in the house which is for my home office. The only thing is that this home room is also my children's homeschooling room and my partner's home office. So we're all learning and working and playing and um, everything from the one space which can be tricky to manage. I'm sure all the households across Australia are doing this at the moment. What is different about teaching and working in a university when you're located in a a regional centre? Well, one thing that I've really noticed is the digital divide. Being this assumption that, oh, we can all just pivot to online learning and teaching. But the internet connection can be really awful in rural and regional Australia, even in fairly large regional towns like where I live in Wagga Wagga. And so when we go to something like a Zoom meeting or an online video conference, um, if I'm having to talk with people that live a little bit outside of town, sometimes they actually need to drive into town and take those calls from their car just so that they have connectivity. And so that that's tricky. It has. It's not quite so easy just to offer the same on-campus experience. And it makes me think a lot about the unique position that rural and regional universities have in Australia because we are really embedded within our local communities in terms of bringing jobs to the local community but also being there as a place where rural and regional students can access higher education without having to live far away from their families and their communities and it's often reiterated I guess even from management within our university that if our university was to close or close campuses or drastically reduce its size, which is options, I guess, that are partly on the table now from COVID-19 conditions, is that our rural communities would really feel that. If Charles Sturt University closed a campus, for example, in Wagga Wagga, that would just have such massive ramifications here that it would almost be unthinkable. So that social contract between the universities and the public, it has a different role in rural and regional places in Australia. University labs are in lockdown, but can you slow down science? You can imagine that trying to run a very practical subject like the forensic science subjects that I teach is a very different environment online to what it is face-to-face with the students in the lab. My name's Anthony Spindler and I'm a senior lecturer in the Centre for Forensic Science at UTS. 
So we have had a few projects that have either slowed down or have had to be put on hold. So my two main areas of research at the moment are forensic interpretation of trace evidence. So specifically looking at how fibres, textile fibres, are transferred by contact scenarios in assaults and other sorts of cases. And you can imagine that in those sorts of situations, we just can't have participants in a contact environment doing assault simulations and and those sorts of experiments. And I've had another student uh, looking at how water environments affect the persistence and our interpretation of textile fibres as well in forensic cases. And the travel bans have made it almost impossible for him to go out and do that work in a proper field setting. We've sort of stepped back in that aspect to what I like to refer to as slow science. Uh, So looking a lot at how we actually take very deliberate steps in understanding every single variable that we're looking at and pre-planning our research methods. So when the students can go back to doing these works with participants or traveling to field sites that they can actually just step in and go flat out for as long as they want. But we know that then their research methods are really, really strongly based in what literature is already out there. Um, In my other field of finger mark detection, again, we've had some similar issues in terms of needing human participants. And the more we understand about how COVID-19 is actually transferred onto surfaces, how long it sticks around, and how it infects other people, we've had to sort of step back and start looking at all of this research and then working out how that affects our own processes in terms of collecting finger marks from donors and how we can do that safely. I would love to see slow science stick around as well. So having that time to really digest the information that already exists and and put more thought into how we plan experiments and research projects. Accounting the days of Corona. It's only two months or so, isn't it? It's not been that long, yet it feels much longer. My name is David Bond, and I am the director of the Master of Business Analytics at the UTS Business School. In terms of the impact that COVID's had on on my particular work, it's just made me hugely busy. The last two and a half months has just been a bit of a blur. And a lot of that has been very much on the teaching side. Really, at the moment, research has been put a little bit to the side because we just haven't had the time nor space nor mental energy to really be thinking about it. It's been a pretty big pivot for us. I've got about 300 students and about half of them seem to be overseas somewhere. And We obviously can't be working on campus, so it's trying to figure out the best ways to kind of make sure we're keeping in touch with them and providing them the resources and just sort of keeping things ticking over. So to do that in a very short space of time has meant, you know, a fair bit of work. So my hopes for how this sort of plays out and when we get back into things from a personal point of view, and this is a risk mitigation issue just for things going on in my background, is that I just want to have a level of surety that when I sort of go back into the workplace and actually just seeing people again, that there's a minimized, obviously not eliminated level of risk of transfer. And I think the country as a whole has done really well with this. And I think the steps that UTS has taken have been great. And so that's going to always be playing in the back of your mind is that, you know, how do we know when we start to gather again, if that's going to be a risk? But I just, in general, hope that we get to really value getting to sort of get back and sort of catch up and and be around other human beings in person. Realistically, it's just been two months of just 
what's going on? Um, like, how is this all impacting all of us? I th- the difficulty is how this impacts individual academics is going to be very clearly moderated by their status in the university. And, and by that, I mean, are they casual? Are they full-time but on contract or are they full-time and tenured? Because you've got three very different groups of people. Those who are on contract, and I actually was just talking to a colleague yesterday about this, his contract's up for renewal next month. He really doesn't know where this where he stands now. Like he's, because we're talking about next semester and he's going, I don't know if I'm going to be around. He just generally, he's been doing really good work, but he just doesn't know what the financial situation is. And then obviously you've got casuals. And if there's not the work coming in, there's just not going to be the work available. And that's obviously going to be quite devastating to a large number of people within the university sector. And that's tough. So I think the impacts and how this affects different people will be very, very much moderated by what their status is within the university. Deferring. Domestic. Students. Should I say hello? Is that a... (laughs) Okay. Hi, I'm Rosalind Hall. I'm a student at the ANU and I study ceramics, a Bachelor of Visual Arts majoring in ceramics. At the moment for my class particularly, it's been very self-directed, which I've now unfortunately dropped out of because it was just a little bit too much for me to try to to learn from home and to practice at home. Um, It just requires a lot of particular tools and materials that I felt that I couldn't achieve something that I would be most happy with um, in a home environment. It now involves a lot more uh, working with a lot of home found materials like cardboard and paddle pop sticks, you know, things lying around that could evoke the idea of what you would make with the material you would otherwise use in your studio. It's more about the intention of what you would create rather than actually kind of creating something. And therefore, it would be better for me to continue my studies next year as opposed to this year. Leading up to the the decision to defer, I just thought about how I would like to complete the course and I decided that I would just be thinking too much about what the course could have been like with studio access and what I would have been able to create with kilns, glaze room, um, just things that are totally impossible to have at home. Being in a physically applied degree, I thought the course fee you know, is for studio access and kiln access. And and I think having a studio at all, I feel like that's what the course does pay for. And I was really grateful that the ANU extended their census date. That gave me an opportunity to be able to attend the courses for a bit longer online to see if I liked them. But there was no as far as I'm aware, no talk of like um fee relief. And therefore I, I did that was like in the back of my head, I would still be paying the full fee for a course that I would be really quite half-heartedly trying to complete at home and not completing things to a standard that I personally would be happy with. And um, yeah, what I could get out of it for what, what you're paying for, for a university level course. But I, yeah, I would really hope to see that it, it all kind of comes back to be teaching on campus again next year would be really great. But I suppose I won't hold my breath because I want things to be, you know, as safe for everyone as possible. So if it means having to wait longer, then maybe that's just how it'll have to be. But I would like to complete my final year of the class on campus, I reckon. Please find attached. 
an anonymous testimony from a PhD student. We are calling them student number three. I'm a final stage PhD student without a scholarship. I'm also a migrant to this country without family support in Australia. In early January, my mother came to visit me for a brief period, only to soon find herself stranded in this country due to the COVID-19 outbreak. We live in a tiny apartment with another person, making it impossible to maintain boundaries, let alone working from home. And because my mother is old, asthmatic, with multiple pre-existing conditions, me and my housemate have been avoided leaving the house since the lockdown came into place. The situation has generated a lot of unpleasant domestic issues. Writing is absolutely the last thing on my mind. Yet I keep getting long emails from execs telling graduate students to A. Continue as usual and B. Fill out this and that surveys. When I contacted them for help, they sent me long emails saying things in circle without offering any meaningful support. Yes, there is the COVID-19 leave, but I'm scared to apply for it knowing that my family issues will be circulated among all these people in my school, faculty, and the uni execs for assessment. But what's worse than a lack of support is knowing that my university does not treat their students as human beings. Changing courses. Casuals in higher education. My name's Anna Hush and I'm a casual teacher and PhD student at the University of New South Wales. Throughout COVID-19, a lot of my time has been spent organising with the UNSW Casuals Network, which is a group of casualised and precarious staff fighting for job security and fair pay. Many of us have already lost work or have lost jobs altogether as a result of COVID-19, and there have already been mass cuts to casual jobs for Term 2, which starts in June. Those of us who still have work, like me, have found that our work hours have increased without any extra pay during the crisis. I think COVID-19 has made it really clear the extent to which the university relies on the exploitation of casual staff um, and also relies on the ability to get rid of us when it needs to. It feels a bit strange defending casual jobs in the short term when in the long term we want to put an end to casualisation in higher education. Uh, which obviously requires some broader structural changes to the landscape of the higher education sector, including restoring proper public funding. But seeing university workers join our union, the NTEU, in droves um, and you know, get organising within their local workplaces makes me really hopeful that we can build the strength we need as workers to change the course that Australian universities are on. I am an early career researcher. I am insecurely employed. Because of this I don't want to be identified. My thoughts are being voiced by an actor. I was prompted by your Twitter invitation to write down some ideas for the higher education sector. I want post-COVID. And of course, once I got going, it all got too long to fit into a soundbite. But here it is anyway, in case there are any bits that might be useful. A good higher education system is one that takes its fundamental identity and authority from the provision of high-quality education. High-quality education means that students have meaningful, trusting and durable relationships with their teachers. 
High quality education is impossible when class sizes are massive, most teaching is done by a precarious underclass of casuals. Teaching is treated as a punishment for insufficient research output. Education is treated as a commodity valued only for its contribution to the economy, including as an export industry. A good higher education system to me is one defined by good relationships between academics and students. High levels of job security, skill, autonomy, and experience on the part of the academic workforce. An environment of adequate time, trust, and respect for everyone. We need some way of valuing these things. A lot will need to be rethought to make such a future possible, but changing the current situation regarding academic selection processes and casualization rates is particularly urgent. We can't keep accepting a system that lets highly skilled people spend their 30s and 40s in casual employment, and some of our finest minds and most gifted scholars leaving the sector because they cannot tolerate years of insecurity i.e. anyone not wealthy, mobile, able-bodied, young, or with caring obligations. We need to systematically marginalise casual employment and move to a new, or is it old, model where most academic jobs are permanent. Thanks for the opportunity to share these ideas. Thank you to those of you who contributed your thoughts and time so we could hear from the people behind the numbers. Those were just some of the voices on the ground at universities across Australia. Thank you to those of you who were generous enough to share your thoughts with us. Some contributors didn't want to share their name or be identified, so we got voice actors to speak for them. And because of time constraints, we've edited some submissions down. But you can see all of the anonymous contributions in full on our website. We'll put a link in our show notes. And as this episode goes to air, the New South Wales government has just announced that it will fund a $20 million package for stranded international students, joining Victoria, South Australia, Queensland and the ACT in offering financial support schemes. And I wanted to let you in on what you can expect to hear from us for the rest of this series. We're going to be reimagining what higher education in Australia might be. We'll talk about its mission and purpose. We'll consider the imperative of climate change and how that might help us rethink our sector. We'll look at the relationship of our campuses to their cities and communities. And we'll ask how higher education should help train and educate the nation's workforce and examine the role that universities can play in post-COVID recovery. Next week, we are going to be asking, what does this all mean right now? How are the consequences of the pandemic playing out for academics, students and university leaders? What cracks are emerging and how are different parts of the sector responding? So fairness must be at the centre of a national response. We can't have campuses left behind. You know, we have to stand together. COVID-19 can't be used as a Trojan horse to reshape the sector along smaller and less vibrant lines. Finding a way to navigate a pandemic in the context of a government who seems willfully indifferent to the plight that the sector faces is a challenging process. I'm Tamsin Peach, and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.
If you found any of this hard to hear or you need some extra help right now, please reach out to someone. You can call Lifeline on 13 11 14, Men's Line Australia on 1300 789 978, Beyond Blue on 1300 226 or Headspace on 1800 650-890. And I know many universities have support services and hardship funds available. The New Social Contract is a podcast series made by Impact Studios at the University of Technology, Sydney. The production team live on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, whose lands were never ceded.